Okay, welcome to Pacific Legends Unleashed, Tales from the South Pacific, Beyond, and even further. Brilliant title. Yeah. That We workshopped that for a long time. Yeah, it was, we, we come up with it, it's, it's a good one. We're, uh, we're unpacking stories, tales, legends from um, this side of the world, the Pacific, from New Zealand, Australia and the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. It's an area that doesn't, doesn't often get explored and we're looking to find some interesting yarns, some good stories and we're going to unpack them in this podcast. My name's Dan and I have Ben with me, resident expert. Yep, how you going? Yeah, good. So today we're talking about one of the great Pacific legends, Captain William Bly. You heard him? I've heard of that guy. Yeah. I mean, in preparation for the show. But had you had you known about him before that? Yeah, I knew about him before that. So Okay. I um I probably should have known more about Bly than than I did. I spent most of my childhood on Norfolk Island. Yes. Um, which is if you find Brisbane on a map and sort of shoot straight out, um, you will find a tiny dot five by eight kilometers in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I spent most of my childhood there. Now, we'll come back to this, I guess, towards the end of mm-hmm. um, this chat about Bly. But a lot of the mutineers um, and their descendants uh, ended up there. And so throughout my childhood, um, I was surrounded by Bounty Day. Every single year we have Bounty Day. There was a show on the island, Mutiny on the Bounty, and you could go and you could watch this, I was going to call it an animatronic boat. Yes. But that doesn't actually, there was no animal involved. Yeah. Boatatronic boat. Yes. And... Um, they would act out the show and you could sort of keep up with the main story beats. But as a kid, you so often don't really invest in the history that surrounds you. Mm. You know, I was definitely too cool for that. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, after being immersed in that sort of situation, culture, history, I knew very little. So you could say that in some ways you've been preparing for this story all your life. I could say that. Would you also say that because you grew up in Norfolk Island, that's why you've got such a lack of social skills? No, no, I work quite um, hard on my social skills, ah, and okay. that's... Well, keep working. I don't, well, I don't know, that's... Would you like to know what I know about Willie Bly? Not anymore. Um, well, I didn't know much about him at all. I remember hearing about the mutiny on the bounty, his probably most famous um, part of his life, but uh, I, I had never really looked into that story. And basically, I just went to the library one day, and I needed a book to read, and I just saw this one. It was blue, it had waves on it, and it had the word Bly. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought... Like a moth to a flame. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Opened the book, turns out absolutely cracking yarn, couldn't put the book down, and uh, it's worth retelling his story yeah. because he's got a pretty amazing life, and we're going to unpack that right now in Let's detail. Do it. So, William Bly, he was born in 1754 mm-hmm. in, in Plymouth. Have you been to Plymouth? Many, many times. Yeah. No. I've been to New Plymouth. Yep. <clears throat> it's okay. I imagine Old Plymouth is pretty rubbish. But anyway, he was growing up there, and um, in Britain at the time, they had a pretty strong navy, and that was a pretty solid career. So straight away, he was out there on the ships doing his thing. Probably, you know, how old was he when he started, you reckon? Well, I read that he signed up when he was seven. Yeah, get him out there, seven. Yeah. Perfect. By the time he was 16, he was starting to get a pretty good reputation as a, a good sailor. He had a pretty good keen an- intellect, thirst for knowledge, and he was really good at navigation. That was his jam. Yeah. And um, because of his reputation, he managed to get aboard this little trip on the HMS Resolution. Do you know anything about that? Captain James Cook. That's the one. Jimmy C. Yep. Yep. Big, big 1776-ish, t- is it? Yep. Correct. That was his James Cook's third big trip. 
to the other side of the world, to the Pacific. So, you know, William Bly's only 22, and he's he's got in there as the role of sailing master, which is a pretty important role because you're kind of like helping out with navigation, also cartography, which is like doing the charts. And that's a really important part of the um, the whole trip because James Cook was all about writing up these charts for for sailors in the future, for unexplored parts of the Pacific. Time and, capsule. And the world. So, yep, and... 22-year-old William Bly was in charge of that. So pretty pretty big ask for him. Yeah, what a guy to learn from. Oh, yeah. Cook yeah. was the must have been sort of the preeminent sailing celebrity at the time. Mm, yeah, what a mentor. So anyway, 22 years old, first big mission, and away they go. They, um, they head on down around the Cape of Good Hope. So to get to the Pacific, Pacific Ocean, you have to go all the way around the bottom of Africa. And that's, you know, a long trip. So they head around Africa. They go to they go pretty low, below forty five degrees, and all the animals start getting cold. They've Roaring forties. Yep. Yep. Wait, animals. Yeah, there's a few animals on the boat. All of these ships, you know, they carry animals for oh for pleasure. No, <laughs> no, no. It's not that kind of trip. They um, they're taking it to like I guess populate various islands with food. They also use it for trading things like that. Yeah, have a pig. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. The lads, they get all the way to Tasmania and they um they drop off some pigs. Okay, to yep. the Aboriginals Have a pig. that are on um Tasmania at the time. Yep. Then they head over to New Zealand into uh, the Marlborough Sounds where they they go to the Queen Charlotte Sound and they drop off some more livestock to the local Māori. and they also give them two pairs of rabbits, which will turn out to be a terrible idea. So They didn't like rabbits? Cook's had an absolute shocker. Well it turns out rabbits breed. And oh, yeah. um, New Zealand's got a lot to eat, and the rabbits just got stuck in and ruined everything. So, um, did they drop the cane toads off in yeah, Queensland as well? Yep, Same trip. Yep, they did that. And two they, for two. They probably threw some weasels and stoats and um, ferrets around as well, just you know, <laughs> just to ruin some more ecosystems. Yep. So you know, all going well so far. Then they head up to Tonga, and they stop there for a month to observe the eclipse of the sun. Mm-hmm. Because um, that was a kind of big deal back then. All the astronomy, a lot of the a lot of the trips to the Pacific were all about um, watching the planets and the stars, etc. Well, this is this is during the reign of King George the Third, yeah. right? He was science mad. He was a big. He fan. loved it. Yeah. And this is like we're at sort of around the time of the French Revolution yes. and the Enlightenment. We've got yeah, great strides, philosophy, natural science. So yeah, mm. watching an eclipse, big big thing. Yeah. From Tonga, they went to Tahiti, and Tahiti was like had been explored previously, and um, that was very friendly, friendly place. Cook was kind of welcomed there, but at this stage of the trip, Cook was behaving pretty irrationally. He was he was being a, a bit weird. He was a bit angry all the time, as you would be if you're hanging out with a bunch of blokes for a, a year or so on a boat. Yeah, but he was behaving that irrationally that some of his crew thought. Either he's got a mental illness, or he may even have a parasitic infection going on that's making him such a such a psycho. What do you reckon? Well, that strikes me as quite reasoned uh, diagnosis on the part of your average sailor. Maybe it was I don't know. Maybe it was more of an open environment where they talked about mental health and yeah, yeah. You think? Yeah, you think the, the the boys were talking about their emotions out there on the boat. I don't know. I thought maybe he's a bit yeah. So anyway, Cooks. Cook, Bly's mentor, is kind of getting a bit angry, getting a bit 
I don't know, frustrated at the other sailors. There's a bit more discipline going on. It's pretty strict. Is he crotchety? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Curmudgeon. Yeah. 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 So anyway, from Tahiti, they head north. And as they're heading into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they run into these islands. And Cook thinks, what can I call these? I'll call these the Sandwich Islands after my mate, the Earl of Sandwich. His delicious mate. Mm. Mm. So the Sandwich Islands, which are now known as Hawaii, mm-hmm. that was their next stop. And Bly was actually the first European to sit, set foot on them. You know? What a guy. Big deal. Yep. So while in, um, while in Hawaii, or the Sandwich Islands, uh, they, they um, met up with the local indigenous people. And um, Cook was very well received, wasn't he? He was, yeah. I remember reading that when, when they turned up, it was some sort of religious festival. It was a significant occasion on the religious calendar, yep. spiritual calendar. Yep. And they were praying, I guess celebrating, worshipping some god. And then on the horizon, the sails appear and here comes well played, a god. Well yeah, played. perfect timing. Oh, You've know. you got to plan your entrance yep. and well, your exit. What an entrance. <laughs> entrance sure, probably better planned than so the sure exit. Not so sure about the exit, but the entrance was good. So they'd spent a bit of time in the Sandwich Islands kind of fixing their boat. And then they headed north again. Because one of the most important parts of this trip on the resolution was to find a northwest passage, which joins essentially the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, if you're travelling from the from Britain and you're trying to get to the Pacific Ocean, you have to either go around Cape Horn or the Cape of Good Hope, and it's massive trip, but like eighteen thousand nautical miles. But if you could cut through in some kind of mis- mysterious northwest passage, you could save like. You could do a trip of 4,000 nautical miles to get to that ocean. Significantly shorter. So that That's be about 14,000 nautical miles. Absolute game changer for the Navy yeah. um, and for trade and for exploration. So the, the Royal Navy was pretty pumped on trying to find this passage. So they went, they went up there. They, they went along the uh, Pacific coast of North America, which is now like British Columbia, Alaska. They made more contact with local indigenous people. Mm-hmm until they came all the way to basically the Bering Strait, which is that kind of gap between Alaska and Russia. And they were like, okay, we're going to find a Northwest Passage up here. So they kind of drove the boat until they could go no further, because basically what happens up there? Uh, Deadliest catch, lots of filming vessels. Lots of fish, lots of sailors. Yep. Lots of ice. They ran into ice. Occupational health and safety issues. They got blocked. They had to turn around. Yeah, okay. They couldn't get past all the severe cold, icy conditions, and the boat was get boat was getting absolutely hammered. So, you know, they had to they had to turn around, head back to the Sandwich Islands, of Hawaii, to fix their boat. And this is when things got a little bit spicy. Why don't you tell us what happened next, there, Ben? Okay, so we've already alluded to Cook's original entrance and his eventual exit from the Sandwich Islands, beautiful yes. Hawaii. Yep. Um, so I'll expand a little more on the, the exit Please because do. this is one of the pivotal moments in Bly's life. This is a formative moment for him and it's certainly one of the, the pivotal moments in Cook's life. It's early February 1779. Yes. Um, by this point, they've turned around from the Northwest Passage. So they've been going for three years. Probably. No wonder Cook was grumpy. Yeah. Well, or the parasite. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, 50-50. Yeah. So they're sailing the, the resolution and the discovery back to the golden shores of Hawaii. And when they get back, everything's relatively fine. They have a good trip, fun with the locals. Yep. Um, play a bit of coob. Oh, do they? I don't know. And, you know, things go well. But after about two weeks, they've worn their welcome a little bit thin. Mm-hmm. They've perhaps taken a little bit more than they should have through trade. Is Maybe it kind of like when your in-laws come to stay? 
Yeah, a little bit. When they sail in and yeah. play cube and then take all of your... Biscuits out of the cupboard. And breadfruit. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, you know, Cook as well comments during this um, return to Hawaii. And this is a direct quote from him. And he often refers to the, the people of Hawaii as natives. Yes. And so just to stick, I guess, with that language that they use in many of the logs and journals, um, I'll just stick with that as well. He says that many of the natives would behave in a way that would... And this is a quote. Um, should I do an accent? Yeah, please do. Okay. Um, betray their thievish disposition. Very good. Where do you? Yeah. Was that Yorkshire? Where was that? Um, I think that might be from the, the Shire. The Shire. Yeah, I was getting kind of Baggins vibes out of that one. Yeah. So Cook has noted this thievish disposition, and it's something that's to some extent baked into a number of these uh, Polynesian societies at the time, the culture. And I don't want to speak, you know, too specifically. This is a very broad stroke that I'm painting, but there are a number of trickster gods associated with these Polynesian cultures. Okay. And have you seen Moana? Yes, I have. Disney film? Yep. Yep. I've heard you sing the songs. Big fan. Yeah. He, it, we've got Maui in Moana. Yep. He's a big guy, but he's a bit of a trickster god. Yes. And he's not the only one. There are others. There's Kaolu. There's Hero. And to some extent, the idea of being sneaky... And getting away with it is somewhat celebrated. It's not that stealing itself is outright positive, but if you do get away with it, then there's something perhaps to be celebrated about that. Okay. So Cook, he announces it's time to go. They've overstayed their welcome. Um, but seven days after their departure, the foremast of the ship is wrenched from its cradle Ooh. and they have to go back. And things were testy. You know, yeah. they didn't leave on great terms. Yep. One of Cook's men... Uh, John Ledyard, and he's a, a character that we'll hear from a, a couple of times because his account is sort of pivotal in piecing this together. Yes. Ledyard wrote... Accent again. Please. Our return to this bay was as disagreeable to us as it was to the inhabitants, for we were reciprocally tired of each other. There you go. Strong. But much better. Yeah, yeah that's good. It's definitely improving. So... Perhaps in the spirit of um, trickery, maybe that thievish disposition that Cook had already noted, some tongs and tools are stolen from one of Cook's ships. Never steal a man's tongs. No, and Cook's had enough of it. He's irate. Yes. He's already irrational. He's got a parasite. Absolutely. The parasite is speaking for him. Yeah. You will not. <laughs> so when they go ashore, they get these tongs and tools back, or they at least attempt to, and a couple of the Hawaiians throw stones at them. Mm. That's cheeky. A little bit cheeky. Yeah, that's sort of tricky, inspired by the tricky gods, the trickster gods. I mean, if a stone hit you in the head, it would be more than cheeky, though, wouldn't it? I'd be cross. Yeah. Yeah. So Cook's not having it, and he writes, that these people will oblige me to use some violent measures. So he, he thinks that they can't let them get away with this. A show of force is necessary because you give an inch, they take a mile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So dawn. February 14th, 1779, Cook's awoken by um, troubling news from the Discovery. The ship's large cutter, so that's one of the, the boats yes. aboard the ship. They can take them out for a little yeah. hoon around the lagoon, uh -huh. um, ferry people and things to and fro. It's missing, and they examine it a little closer, and the rope has been cut. Ooh. So this was no accidental loss. It didn't just slip loose of its mooring. And yep. Thievery abounds. Thievery. Cook orders the Marines to arm. He's still, he's boiling yep. Cook. Mm -hmm. And he asks them to station themselves across the bay to prevent any sailing canoes going out. So the point here is we don't know who's taken it, but by hook or by Cook, 
Yeah, very good. <laughs> by hook or by crook, uh, they're going to stop those canoes making a getaway. Yeah. So Bly is one of the people sent out in the resolution's large cutter. Yes. And he's supposed to chase one of these sailing canoes, which is heading out of the bay. Cook doesn't want anyone leaving. And Cook's got a plan here. And, you know, looking back, benefit of hindsight, um, I question it. His plan? His plan, yeah. I I think, you know, potentially under the circumstances, I would have done something different, Mm. better. So his plan is to take a hostage. The situation's already at boiling point. He decides to take the king and two of his sons back on board the resolution until the cutter is found. So they've overstayed their welcome. They've returned. Now he's taking hostages. And the disparity in numbers between Cook and his men and the natives of the Sandwich Islands is enormous. He's outnumbered. He's outnumbered. Okay. He's outnumbered. He's not outgunned. Taking the king as hostage, probably not his best idea. No, like I said, I'm going to I'm gonna criticise. Okay. From 2023, yep. I think he made the wrong call. Yep. So before Cook even makes it to shore, though, to enact this grand plan of his to take a couple of hostages, Bly's chasing the canoe, and it appears, and this is the language again used from the time, that the thieving Indians, Ooh. they just turn up and basically anybody that's not white and missing teeth... Indians. Okay. Just broad label. They're getting away. So Bly's desperate to to stop them, and he orders his men to fire. Just a shot, warning shot. Fire the cannon. A gun. A gun. Yeah, a gun. He's in the cutter, remember? He's not on board with the... And another guy, Lieutenant John Rickman, he's out in one of the Discovery's other boats, and he hears it and thinks, right, safety's off, let's fire. Now, the shot that Bly orders actually kills somebody. Oh, Mm. It yeah. kills the chief. And oh. I know, this is great reaction from you. Nice one, Bly. The emotion in your voice, I can tell that you're just being carried. If you're going to shoot a warning shot, shoot a high. Yeah, it was just a poor shot, I think. Yeah, okay. Horribly inaccurate. So this chief, he was not of the first rank. That's what I could find yes. in my extensive research. So he wasn't a top dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, he definitely wasn't the thief. So Fitzsimons, he's an Australian author. Um, he's written a really good book about, you know, Bly, the mutiny, yeah. um, and what happens afterwards. It's very creatively titled. What's your guess? Um, Bly on the mutiny. Uh, no, that would, no. No, mutiny on the bounty, I mutiny believe Mutiny on is. the bounty. Yeah. Okay. Um, he says at this point, and I'll just use an Australian accent. He's an Australian guy. Please. He says, things are spinning out of control. Yes. So it gives you some idea of the, the desperation of the situation. Cook's convinced he can take control, but he just has to be forceful. There's no room for subtlety here. The parasite is controlling his whole body at this point. His arms, his legs, mm-hmm. everything. Cook's mm-hmm. is just a shell of a man. He's yes. a husk. Yes. He's just been completely overpowered. And he... He says that the Indians will not stand the fire of a single musket. Okay. He said it in an accent, though. Yeah. So one shot in anger, that would scatter the the natives and would send them running. Shock and awe. Yeah. They won't be able to stand it. He tells his company of marines to stay in the launch when he lands. He's got that support if he needs it, but, you know, Mm -hmm. he's cook. Yeah. And he's... He's a god. Yeah, he's more of an imposing figure than Bly, too, because Bly's this... He's described as this round, sort of red-faced potato man. But Cook's... Angular, he's you know tall, chiselled. Yeah, he's hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cook's. Everyone knew Cook was hot. Mm. He is, and so he strides. Yeah, he strides with this genuine authority into the village, straight to the king's hut. And this is a guy called Tariabu. Tariabu protests. He says, "Mate, 
I didn't take your boat. I don't know what you're on about. That's fair. Yeah, especially if you didn't take it. Mm. And so Fitzsimons, this is the Australian author again, writes, With practised, easy deception, Cook takes Tariabu by the hand and asks if he will accompany him to the resolution to discuss this further. Which is taking him hostage, right? Yeah, that's the hostage plan. Okay. It's, all, it's all coming coming along nicely, just as Cook had haphazardly planned. Yes. Or the parasite. Yes. Yeah, who's to say? So... They're walking down towards the shore and one of the king's favourite wives comes out from the village. She's grabbing him, saying, like, no, don't go. Maybe she knows a little bit more. And it takes two of the local chiefs and they come and have to forcibly sit the king down on the shore to stop him from leaving. Um, Word's starting to get around at this point too that that death has potentially come today already. A shot has been fired. Blood has been spilled. Bly. Blame Bly. It was that shot that... St- this is Fitzsimons. Yes. It was that shot that started the volley, the volley that killed a chief, and now Cook can feel the powerful royal hand in his titan with rage, the knuckles white. Ooh. So the natives are, are at this point arming themselves. They've got long spears, clubs, daggers, um, and the mood continues to darken. Yes. Yeah, things are, like Fitzsimons said, spiralling out of control. Cook and his men are surrounded by three or 400 people. And again, this is according to that sailor, John Ledyard. So Bly, he's ordered that shot to be fired, and now he's just hanging out in his boat. Watching. Yeah, just watching. Yeah. Just wondering. Bit of popcorn. Bobbing up and down in the water. And Cook instructs his men to withdraw. He's told by a marine, and again, we're trusting Ledyard here, uh, that the, the Indians will attack in a few minutes. He needs to get out of there. It's imminent. They've got to go. At this point, the natives begin to pick up stones, one in each hand, off the shore, and they're knocking them together in a steady but slowly building rhythmic beat. And I'm basically pillaging from Fitzsimon's work here. I'm just yes. still like, none of this is an original thought. Okay. The mob starts to close on Cook and his men swirling around them, beating their rocks, yelling, shaking their fists and weapons. Steady now, lads, steady. For Cook knows that to make any sudden move now, show any signs of panic, is to die. Clack, 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 clack. That's the stones. Oh, okay. Mm. In the end, however, it is Captain Cook who must act, as he is confronted by the insolence of a man armed with a thick mat and a long spike. Something's going to go bad here. Yeah, although the, the mat doesn't sound that threatening. No. No, someone's coming at you with a mat. Not a typical weapon. No, I mean, I could use it. Those of us skilled in... In mat work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, taking his gun, Cook aims it at the threatening native and pulls the trigger. As the barrel is loaded only with a small shot, it is not intended to kill, merely to hurt and to warn the others off. The instant the shot is fired, there is a momentary pause as everyone, Cook, the native, and the men backing each of them look to see the result. He's still standing. The shot did not penetrate the native's water-soaked war mat. The war mat sounds a bit... Mm. A little bit more imposing. Clack, 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 clack. Captain Cook's assailant is now convinced that Cook is not invincible, and worse, aggrieved that Cook has fired at him, he charges. Alarmed, desperate, Cook fires his second barrel, this one loaded with a ball. He misses, but his shot finds another native who drops to the ground. In an instant, all is chaos. Captain Cook hesitates no more. So Cook at this point yells fire, Cook or the parasite yells fire. 
he, he calls the Marines, uh, still lined up along the rocks, and the muskets are discharged at this point. There's just a thunderous roar. Um, Second Lieutenant King later wrote that the islanders <laughs> contrary to the expectations of everyone stood the fire with great firmness and before the marines had time to reload they broke in upon them with dreadful shouts and yells what followed was a scene of the utmost horror and confusion <laughs> so in among the mayhem Cook turned his back on the Hawaiians and apparently he waves his hat to the officers in the boats just offshore and there's various interpretations as to why he does this. But, again, I'm going to criticise him at this point because when I'm fighting, when I'm regularly fighting somebody, yeah. I face them. Yeah. Yeah. I can watch where they're coming from. And what did Cook do? Well, he didn't do that. No, he turned around. He was not not thinking clearly again. So he's struck in the back of the head with a club. Mm. Fitzsimons writes, Cook staggers forward, drops his musket and falls to one knee, hands in the lapping water. As he rises, another native chief brings a dagger right down into the middle of Cook's back. The blade passes quite through James Cook, and his whole body seizes in shock and pain. In a moment of blurred fury, other natives rush forward and deal further blows. And so there are conflicting accounts about what happened to Cook's body. Yes. Bly later wrote that he saw the body being dragged up a hill to a village where it was torn to pieces. But other accounts suggest a slightly more um, respectful approach to dismembering Cook's body, if there can be such a thing. So they suggested his body was maybe disemboweled and baked. They probably would have got the parasite then, wouldn't they? Probably. Maybe that's what they were after. Okay. And bones were important in Hawaiian culture, so they distributed his bones amongst the the different villages as a sign of sort of respect. And um, some of the bits were sent back to the ship. Which bits? Well, they got his hands. Okay. So that's nice. So he could still steer. Yeah. Could, yeah. Use his fingerprints. Yeah. But he's dead. Oh, he's dead, yeah. Cook. Cook's gone. Yeah, he's dead. But, you know, in saying all of that, this isn't really a podcast about Cook. No. No, this is about Bly. And yeah. so he was involved. You know, yes. he played a pivotal role in this. He ordered the shot that was fired that killed the chief guy um, and heated the entire situation to boiling point. And he watched it all happen. And I think... You know, you're going to talk a little bit later about Bly's encounter with another group of natives on another island. Okay, yep. Um, And it's eerily similar to this. You know, he saw, it was foreshadowing almost what would happen later. Mm. He watched the slow walk of Cook and the Hawaiian king down to the beach. He heard the rhythmic clacking of the rocks increasing to that fever pitch of intensity and menace. And he watched Cook respond by force and then to be overwhelmed by that force. And Bly later wrote about how badly the Marines had done his job. He was... Uh, he wasn't happy, was he? Not happy at all, no. Much like myself. Yeah. Um, if they'd just fixed bayonets, Bly said, if they'd just charged, if they'd stood their ground, things would have gone differently. They could have used their superior force, their training, um, and Cook could have lived. And Bly thought he should have lived, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. Imagine watching your mentor die. Yeah, he's dead. Yeah. Imagine. His expert tutor, the you know master of the seas, this guy that's brought him up to some extent, at least along this trip, this third voyage. He's Britain's greatest sailor, a man of discovery, I mean, intense he's, talent. He's got a few things named after him in New Zealand, doesn't he? Go on. The, the mountain, Mount Cook. Yep. Cook Strait. Cook Strait. Yep. The, the pub I used to go to in Dunedin. Yep. The Captain Cook. Yeah. So it's not like it was all for nothing. Yeah. I mean, it was a good pub. Yeah. He should be proud. Yeah. But he's dead. Yeah, he's dead now. So, you know, what now? 
Well, let's get back to Bly. Yeah. That's what this podcast is about. How about we focus on that? Okay, so we're at the, uh, we're still in the Sandwich Islands. Mm -hmm. How's Cook? Yum. Oh, dead. He's dead. Didn't he? Yeah, he hacked to pieces. He's dead. Yeah. Um, But good news for Bly. He's got a promotion. Okay, silver linings. Because suddenly um, there's a position available. Yeah. So he's moved up to to Navigator, and um, this this man called Captain Charles Clark has taken over command from Cook. Sounds like a nobody. He is a bit of a nobody, but the interesting thing about Clark is he takes over, but he takes over and he's pretty sick, right? Mm-hmm. And within a couple of weeks, he's also dead. Wow. He's caught it. The he, parasite jumped. No, no, he had tuberculosis. Oh. TB. Because what happened? With, what happened with this guy is that um, he went to jail for his brother. Um, he was kind of serving a debt for his brother and got tuberculosis while he was in there. Wow! Came out of jail, went on this massive voyage, got promoted to captain, which is a massive deal. Mm. Dead. Dead. So, I wonder how his brother felt about all that. Probably a little bit guilty. Yeah, your little pang. So. After that, an American-born seafarer was promoted to captain. His name was John Gore. Mm-hmm. Not such good news for Bly. They don't really get on. Right. So you'll hear about that in a second. But anyway, they leave the um, Sandwich Islands because they're no longer welcome, right? Cook's been killed. Yeah, that is a, a red flag. They, the, the indigenous people, the natives, are very angry. So yeah. they're out of there. Mm-hmm. So they kind of chart a bit more of Hawaii or the Sandwich Islands, and then they're like, let's have another crack at the Northwest Passage. Okay. Might they, have melted. They didn't, they didn't learn the first time. So straight back up there. Yeah. Once again, what happens? They run into ice. Mm-hmm. Predictable. Yeah. So they turn around, they head back, all the way back to the, to the UK. Um, and they've been away for, at this stage, they've been away for four years, right? Yeah, that is massive. It's a big trip. Yeah. And Bly has done a huge amount of work in terms of cartography, navigation. So when they all get back, Mm. everyone's kind of getting promoted. I mean, a couple of captains died, but they did achieve some good stuff. They weren't able to find the Northwest Passage, but they did a lot of exploring, um, created a lot of charts. And you'd think Bly kind of leveled up on that trip too. Oh, yeah. Professionally, He'd be the one. If anyone's going to get promoted, he'd be the one, but... Yeah. Not so. Basically what happens is they get back and old John Gore, the American, plays down Bly's role. He basically doesn't give him any credit for his work um, and he's probably one of the only ones that doesn't get any kind of promotion from that. Right. Thrown under the bus. Basically. Yeah. Someone else gets all the credit, Henry Roberts, for the charts that Bly did. Okay. So imagine that, four years of work. Yeah. No credit. And Bly's ambitious too. It's not that... You know, it's not that he's just jumped on a ship because he had nothing else to do. He's, he's a career ranks, right? naval. So guy. that's a bit of a doubter. He's mm. lost his mentor. He's come back from this voyage. Mm. Doesn't get any credit. Now at the time, seventeen eighty, and f- I guess fortunately for Bly, England declares war on the uh, the Dutch. Oh, stoked! Yep. So yeah. in terms of if you're in the navy, war means good chance of promotion, right? Mm. So exciting times. Have a guess at why they um, declared war on the Dutch. Just general belligerence, probably. No, 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 no. Because uh, the Dutch weren't going to help them out. Yeah. They were uh, having a bit of trouble with colonies. Yeah, apparently this little 
place on the other side of the world called America was um, not paying their taxes. Right. They were playing up. Wait, but were they represented in Parliament or not? No. Okay. No, no, they weren't. Right. But the Eng- England said, let's go crush these colonists. Come on. Come on, Dutch. Come help on us Dutch. out. You're, you are, you're our allies. Yeah. And they they weren't interested. We've got better things to do. So Left England said, okay, red. if you're going to be like that, mm. let's go to war. Yeah. And then in the same year, Bly's father dies. Oh. So it's all happening. Yeah. The following year, Bly gets married. Well, he's just hitting, hitting goals, uh, those milestones. Yeah. Except promotion. Elizabeth Beetham is his, is his wife. Yeah. And one of the great things about this marriage, obviously apart from the love factor, is that she's got an uncle called Duncan Campbell, and he is an important person in the world of shipping. He's a commercial ship owner. He's also a plantation owner, and he's a massive merchant in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. So basically he's got a lot of influence when it comes to the um, shipping, etc. So, And that's going to play a part later in Bly's life. He's setting up a lot of... Spoilers here. This is good foreshadowing, though. Yeah, you're welcome. You're hooking them in. So Bly, you know, he's back at home. He's married. He starts having some kids. He has. Um, he ends up having six daughters. No, that's too many. No? No, have, no, I mean, I'm sure he did, but... He actually has a couple of twin idea. boys as well, but unfortunately they die very early in life. Um, so he's got, he's got six daughters at home. Maybe they were a threat to him. Maybe. They've got to go. And uh, an interesting fact is that 10 days after being married, Bly gets called onto, um, into the war with the Navy. He has to go fight the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, and the Americans. Right. Honeymoon? Does he, does no he take honeymoon. the wife? He's, he's busy. No, no wife. The wife wasn't allowed on a ship. Okay. So, you know, he's out there. He's, um, and he, he does a few things. He captures a, a 400-ton French boat. Oh, <laughs> he you know, he Just also was involved things. in a battle with the Dutch yep. that left 140 people dead, 400 wounded. So he's 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 in battle. Yeah. But he's really fortunate because he gets a wee bit of time off to see the birth of his first daughter. So they um, they pressed pause on that war while Blyde ch- went home to see what was going on with um, yep. his wife and his, his lovely daughter. Yeah. But this leads me all on to um, what perhaps is the most important part of Bly's life in terms of his fame. And it's the bounty. Heard of that? Yeah. Yep. Um, go on. It's a ship, isn't it? It's a ship. Yeah. So basically, what happens is in 1784, there's the plantations over in the West Indies, right? And they're growing sugarcane, etc. And they've got a bunch of slaves that are doing all the work. And one of the plantation owners suggests to a guy called Joseph Banks that if they had some breadfruit trees in the West Indies, they would be able to feed their slave populations. Mm. Just to give some context there, I suppose, and maybe you'll mention this, but Banks was on Cook's voyage. Ah, yes. Joseph Banks, he was the the botanist on uh, Cook's first voyage. Okay, yeah. He's got a few things named after him, including Banks Peninsula. I've been to a bank. Yeah, the bank's named after him, yeah. Yeah. So he's a very prominent scientist at the time. Yeah. Had a lot of influence. And they needed this, the breadfruit, because after losing the colonies, right, we've got this revolutionary war, and then all of that corn and the those staples that came from those colonies and were passed down to Britain's colonies, supplies shut off. Yeah, they couldn't use any, any food from America now, so the plantation owners were a bit worried that they wouldn't be able to feed the slave populations, or maybe it was going to cost lots of money. So mm. this could all be solved if they, if they took this amazing plant that grew in Tahiti called the breadfruit tree. Because that 
could feed the feed the slaves for minimal effort. Brilliant. So this idea that we'll, we'll send a boat, we'll go pick up some breadfruit from Tahiti and transplant it to the West Indies, everyone will be happy, right? Mm, yeah, the slaves will be stoked. So that's the idea. So the Navy, they're into this. Yep. They're like, yep, Joseph Banks, he knows what he's talking about. He had some clout. They go and buy a ship for this mission, and that ship was called the HMS Bounty. Interesting thing about this uh, this ship is it's quite small. It was only 90 feet, which is like 27 metres long mm-hmm. and 215 tonnes, which probably doesn't mean much to people, but it's a it's a whole lot smaller, smaller. Than, <laughs> smaller, smaller than uh, Cook's resolution. Yeah. And because it's smaller, um, there's not much space, and there's no space for Marines, so you can't bring any soldiers to help protect people. Yeah. There's also not a whole lot of space for crew, so everyone's going to be jammed in there. And the fact that they're taking these breadfruit plants they end up converting quite a bit of the ship into kind of like a, a glasshouse area to, to look after the plants. Yep. So the bit that would normally be the captain's quarters gets refitted for that. So already, straight away, there's a few lemons stacking up. There's a few issues going on here. Do you know how many plants they were hoping to take with them? Probably about a thousand. Okay. Yeah. That'd do. A lot. Yep. Not just one or two. They weren't going to bank on one or two plants. They were, they were taking a lot of plants. They need a lot of space. So the great cabin, that's usually the captain's sort of quarters and yeah. dining area. Yeah. So all of that. They're just condensed, smashed together. Yeah. Yeah. They cut that. So because um, of Duncan Campbell, his wife's uncle, and because Bly is also good friends with Joseph Banks, he gets given the job of being in charge of this mission. Right, gets his promotion. Yeah, essentially, he's in charge. So that's a massive deal for um, for Bly. So he's pretty stoked. Um, he's not as stoked once he sees the boat and how small it is. Well, he's a small guy, though. He's a small guy. He's five feet tall. He's a tiny little man. Yeah, he, he's a small man. He's a small man and it's a small ship. But yeah. still, it's a big mission to the other side of the world. You need a lot of crew to sail these ships anyway. It's not just like a five-man chuck the uh, propeller on kind of thing. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of crew getting on there. Um, Forty-four men, in fact. So basically, the the lineup for the for the bounty is Bly. He's in charge, right? Yep. Then below him is a guy called Fryer, yep. second in charge, and below him is this guy called Fletcher Christian. Okay. And he's going to be an important person in this story. But the interesting thing is that Fletcher, Christian, and William Bly actually knew each other. Yeah, they'd been on a couple of voyages together. Yeah, so they were Caribbean. You could even call them friends, maybe. You could. Um, Let's do it. Let's call them friends. Yeah. And um, Bly probably just said, "Look, you're you're a good geezer. Do you want to come on this mission to the take these plants to this place in the West Indies? Not going to be that hard." Yeah. So yeah, that's good. He's got his mate coming on the trip, and um, everyone's happy. And Fletcher Christian too, he, he was of good stock, you know, the, the English-British class yeah. system. Yeah. Christian is above Bly. Yes. But yet they're mates. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a few issues. Like, the, the crew is going to be cramped. 33 of the crew just jammed in there in a very small, small space. Right next to all the crew, animals. You've always got to have your animals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially... These, these blokes are just living next to the pigs and the, and the sheep and the rabbits and whatever. 
that can't be good. Plus there's, you know, there's no Marines to help with discipline. No, and we've seen, obviously, Cook didn't use them to great effect, but in a pinch, pretty handy. Yeah. Law and order. Yeah. Something to call on. So, okay, away they go. Things are looking, you know, there's a, there's a few few issues, but everyone's happy. They're ready to crack on. Ship gets ready to launch. Unfortunately, the weather is not playing ball. In England? Yeah. Bad weather? Yeah. yeah. You, you wouldn't read about it, would wow. you? But um, they can't launch the boat because there's no... No wind. Come on. You forget back in the day they can't just they can't just roll out of there on full full steam. No. So they've just got to wait for the favourable wind. So they sit there in in harbour waiting waiting for everything to work out and time goes by. Everyone's getting a bit frustrated. Yeah. Bly actually goes home to visit the um his family. Yeah. As, as you do. I remember reading about that. But the interesting thing about this trip. Yeah. Is he thinks to himself, why don't I t- take a couple of cheeses? Yeah. It's just cheese. As you do. It's a couple of wheels of cheese. So he takes a couple of wheels of cheese out of the uh, out of the store, out of the ship, yeah. which you're not really allowed to do, are you? No, but I mean his ship. His ship? Yeah. Yep. So he takes these cheeses, he goes home and he has a great cheese fondue or a cheese party or some kind of, who knows what goes on, weird stuff with cheese, but he has yeah. a good time. No big deal, right? No. Big deal. Yeah. I, yeah. This is the moment where, you know. Later on, the wheels sort of fall off. The wheels of cheese. Wheel, the wheels of cheese. I see where you're going. No. So anyway. Be serious. Okay. Finally, the winds start to become favourable, and they can leave. Mm-hmm. But they're way behind sketch, and that's not great. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get around South America, Cape Horn. Yep. Big William Bly wants to circumnavigate the globe to tick another box. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just want to go around the normal way around South Africa. He's like, let's go around Cape Horn. Come on, boys. It's quicker. We can also do the whole loop of the globe and yeah. be an absolute, absolute Pacific legend. Yeah. So unfortunately for them, because they were so delayed, that's really put pressure on them getting around Cape Horn because the winds tend to um, become less favourable later in the season. Yeah, because they left just before Christmas, like yeah. December 23rd. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 1788? No. Mm. Yeah. So they're on their way, they're heading down to Cape Horn, and um, things are going well, until what happens, Ben? Um, bad things. This, these wheels of cheese yeah. come back to bite them. They do, the wheels do well and truly fall off. For some reason, Bly gets pretty fired up. Well, he fancies some cheese, does he? He's a big, he's a big cheese lover, and he decides to have another cheese party on the ship this time. Yeah. He goes to the store and turns out two cheeses are missing. Yeah, quick stock take, and it does not add up. Two cheeses are missing, and Bly says to himself, someone on this ship has stolen the cheese. Who's taken my cheese? So he kicks off, and who does he blame? Does he blame himself? Uh, Yeah, I think he was quite a reflective guy. No. No, he doesn't. He blames the crew. Right, all of them. All of them. uh, He is not happy to the fact that he actually... Punishes them. How would you punish the crew for stealing cheese, mate? Um, take away their cheese. Take yeah, ban cheese. But yeah, no, no more, more cheese. cheese. This is all my cheese from now no on. No more cheese for the crew. So the weird thing is, Bly took the cheese. Yeah. Either he totally forgot that he took the cheese. Yeah. Or he's that kind of person that he's blaming it on the crew. He must have forgotten though. He must have. because yeah, that does not let's, make sense any other way. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And uh, the crew get punished. So there's a little bit of tension, and this is pretty early on on the trip. Yeah, because I remember reading that Fryer also, he said to Bly, 
And I think some of the men maybe overheard, you know, like, Ah, oh, Captain, you stole the cheese. So it wasn't a secret that Bly took them. Okay. Not a not great leadership. Not great leadership, no. If there's one thing that's going to mellow people out, it's a good bit of cheese, and mm. he's denying them that. So an interesting thing that Bly does is he changes the traditional two-watch system, which is normally four on, four off, and he changes it to three watches of eight hours, which is great. However, you need three officers to be in charge. Mm. So you've got Bly, he's in charge for one watch. Yep. You've got Fryer, he's in charge for another. But the third person he chooses to be on watch is Fletcher Christian. Yes, his mate. Which means that Christian will have a group of people that's under him for eight hours a day that he's starting to bond with, that he's making connections with. And this is going to... Unsupervised. Unsupervised. Everyone else is asleep, maybe. So this means that um, he's got a group of increasingly loyal men under his command. So this could really play a part later on. Yep. So... The carry on down to Cape Horn. Bit late in the bit late in the year to be going around in Cape Horn. Far too late. Don't do that. And they get there, and unfortunately, just as um, predicted, the uh, weather's gone bad. Mm. But Bly, he's a pretty uh, stubborn guy. He's going to have a crack. Yeah. So they go at it in some of the worst conditions ever. Think Walls of, of water. Yeah. You yeah. think of the worst weather you've ever experienced. It's probably probably worse than that. Yeah. Um, storms, just wind, snow. Snow. The water was coming in over the ship. The ship was getting damaged. Everything was leaking. People were freezing. The animals were cold. The pigs were freezing. Poor pigs. Yeah. No, they were bailing water, I think, like 24 hours a day at this point just to keep the ship. Absolutely, absolutely rough as guts. It's a notorious Drake Passage yep. um, for being bad weather, but imagine being in a sailing ship where you're at the mercy of the wind. Yep. And um, for 33 days, they just go at it, trying to get around Cape Bly. And they do get, they make a little bit of progress. Is that admirable or just, is it stupid? I would say, in hindsight, very stupid. Yeah, let's only judge them in hindsight. We wouldn't do that. Yeah. We would have turned around. Oh, I would have turned around. I would have given yeah. up after day two. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just horrible. So in the end, um, they, they turn around. An interesting thing during these 33 days is there was a 16-year-old called Peter Haywood, young guy. Yeah, he was Fletcher Christian's mate. Good mate of Good Fletcher friends. Christian. He gets asked to get up and on top of the mast. He's mast-headed. Yeah, he's as up, a punishment. He's up there in the worst storms ever, clinging onto these ropes, freezing fingers. Yeah. Probably feels like he's going to fall to his death. Yep, understandable. Imagine that. And he's, you know, around the Drake Passage and... Uh, they say that he never actually forgot those those moments that stuck with him for the rest of his life. Yeah, that could probably sort of a bit of resentment towards Bly for putting him up there. Yeah, hundred percent. So finally, after thirty three days, they turn around. The dream of circumnavigating the globe is is a bit done, and decide they need to go the other way. But they're alive, you know. Everyone's That's alive. Pretty remarkable. No one's themselves. dead. The boat's taken a bit well, of a hiding. Cook's dead. Got oh, Cook's dead. Yeah. Sorry. So the boat got smashed. So. They swing by Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Bit of time to fix up the boat, dry the clothes out. Yep. Warm up the pigs. How much time are we talking? We're talking um, 38 days. Yeah, righto. Rest and repair. Yep. Whilst they're in um, Cape Town, uh, interesting thing is that Fletcher Christian borrows some money off Bly. Mm-hmm. What does he want to do with that? I don't know. 
I don't have the facts there. Who knows? No, we're maybe, not about facts. Maybe a bit of dice in the alley. Probably. But um, I don't think he ever pays him back. You well, can't. I mean, yeah, money between friends, tricky thing. Mm. And Bly wasn't made of money, so probably I suppose that was a big deal. Mm. So, yep, that's happened. Um, while they're there, the first crew, man, James Valentine, is pretty close to death. And um, the surgeon, Thomas Huggin, lets Bly know, just as he's about to die, hey, we've got a, we've got a guy here that's he's, he's not well. Yeah. Bly's furious. Valentine's died. Oh, he's dead. He, and, and then he dies. Mm. And if there's one thing that ruins a captain's reputation, it's when someone dies on, on your ship. Yeah, he was intent on getting back with a clean copybook. Yeah. So he's dead. But other than that, it's all going okay. Mm-hmm. Nothing too major here. They carry on. The boat's all fixed. And once again, Bly gets pretty annoyed with the surgeon. Huggin. Any idea why? Because uh, he's drunk and useless. Wasn't he super obese? He was this guy that Bly thought's very ironic. He's in charge of the men's health and he's the least healthy person he's yep. ever he, seen. He loves, he loves slogging back at Frothy, doesn't he? Yeah, he loves, yeah. he loves himself. Yeah. Some rum, some beer, mm. all the big ones. Mm. And um, they don't have the best relationship, those two. And what, what Huggin does actually is to wind Bly up even further is he often sits on him. No. Oh. He often says to the captain, look, we've got a couple of sailors here and they're too ill to perform their duties. Right. And there's nothing Bly can do about that. So yeah, because... He, he has power over him. Yeah, the surgeon has the ability to do that and the captain can't sort of supersede. So Huggin declares man after man to be sick, even <laughs> though Bly sees nothing wrong with them. Yeah. Um, and he even says that three men have struck, been struck down by scurvy, that old... On Bly's ship. Yeah, and Bly is furious because he goes out of his way to make sure everyone is healthy, everyone is clean. He makes people dance for three hours a day. Yeah, he fiddles. For their health. He fiddles with his men. Yeah, because he's got a blind fiddler. That's right, Michael Michael Byrne, the blind fiddler. Blind fiddler every day just to be healthy. They they do a bit of dancing. So Bly's very into health. Yeah. Um, And now people are getting sick. But Bly's not so sure about this. Mm-hmm. So it gets to the point where Huggin just keeps getting drunk and one day he can't even get himself up for dinner. Bly's had enough. He yes. stands Huggin down. Yep. He brings in a new surgeon, Thomas Thomas Ledwood. And as soon as this happens, suddenly everyone becomes healthy again. Yeah, he's a brilliant doctor. No more scurvy. Brilliant doctor. Or was it just all made up? Oh, yeah. I think you're throwing the cat amongst the pigeons there. So um, that's that solved. But other than that, we're still on track. We're on our way to Tahiti. Yeah. The crew's semi together. Mm, bit of tension. Yeah. But they're getting there. They're making progress. Yeah. And everything will be fine when they get to Tahiti. And at this stage, they, they arrive. No more drama. They're in Tahiti. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Ben, because you're going to start explaining what happens next. So it's late October at this point, 1788. After a journey that went for how long? Ten, ten months. Yes. They left England at the end of 1787. Yep. So Tahiti sighted as the bounty rounds Point Venus, uh, which is the point where Captain Cook first recorded the transit of Venus in 1769, way back when. The ship's greeted by canoes, lots of canoes. And once the Tahitians believe the sailors to be British rather than Portuguese, the decks just swamped, completely crowded. Yeah. 
Bly posts a bunch of rules on the ship's mast. Basically, in summary, no one's allowed to let on that Cook's dead. Okay. Remember, he did die. Keep it on the down low. Yeah, don't tell anyone. Okay. Because Cook's a living legend. He turned up. They thought he was a bit of a god. They called him Toot. Yep. And they didn't want this mystique. Bly didn't want to lose that aura of association or... Yeah. So they also can't mention the breadfruit mission. Bly's a bit of a control freak. Mm -hmm. He wants to deal with that himself. He'll try and encourage and get facilitate that transaction to take place. Um, the sailors are amazed to learn, and a few of them have been there before. I think four yes. have been to Tahiti prior to this. But they learned that the men will gladly trade a night with their wife for a single nail. Bargain. Yeah, just a nail. So, and so it's not just a night with a woman. It's a night with a man's wife for a nail or a comb or a feather a why, fork. Why do they why do they love nails so much? Um on the islands? Yes. No no metals whatsoever. Oh, Volcanic islands. Okay. So, you know, things like iron, those sorts of Yeah. They're they're highly prized. And red things like red feathers, um I remember Bly picked up some red ostrich feathers something. Yes. Uh somewhere else so that he could trade when oh, he got there. Interesting. Color of the gods red. Yep. So They'd heard the stories, the soldiers, they'd been confronted by the reality of, you know, this freedom, this paradise. And obviously there's been a little bit of tension aboard the bounty since they departed England, but especially since they left South Africa. We mentioned the cheese, the money that's been lent, Haywood being mastheaded. And one of the other things that happened on that journey back from South Africa was Fryer as ship's master, sailing master. Yes. One of his roles, his duties, was to look after the ship's expense books. Okay. So he was in charge of making sure that every expense that Bly recorded um, was accurate, um, and he was just sort of that check and balance to make sure nothing dodgy was going on. Okay. Now, he'd refused to sign. Bly came to him after signing it himself, and he got the carpenter to sign for the things that he had purchased, Yeah. and Fryer just said, I'm not going to do it. So you can assume here, we can infer that there was perhaps a little bit of... Um, skullduggery. Yeah, maybe some skullduggery. Was Bly cooking the books? Mm-hmm. Bly certainly seemed to think so. Um, as a result of that, Bly just tore strips off Fryer. He, blistering rage, just went after him. Mm-hmm. And obviously the relationship between them frayed a little bit. And in wake of that, Christian was promoted as well. Okay. So he was, I think he was made acting lieutenant, which essentially leapfrogged Fryer's position. So he was nominally second in command on the ship at this point. So... Yeah, continuing splinters are starting to sort of drive their way into the the team, the crew. Yeah. In an effort to resolve all of this tension, they've just arrived in paradise. Bly records in his log, Every night I order... I think that's a completely different accent. Mm. Every, every night I order all the natives on shore except the women as soon as the sun is down. And you can see what he's getting at. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim... Barry, you guys head back, please. Yeah, all the all the blokes. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, Melissa, hang out, hang on. For the men, that's fair though. It's been a sausage fest for a long time. Hundred percent. Get some ladies on there. Yeah. Um, a few days after their arrival, Bly sends his best man. Who's that going to be? Uh, Big Fletch. Big Fletch. Fletcher Christian yep. sends him to shore to escort King Tyner, who's the ruler of this area of of Matavai Bay. Yep. To the bounty, so that the two the two big dogs can chat. And this is a massive moment in the story because, according to some accounts at least, this is the first time that Christian sees 
the love of his life. Oh, how good. What a moment. Yeah. The incomparable Tahitian beauty that is Moatua. She, she sounds beautiful. Yeah, it's a good name, isn't it? Christian, not a huge fan, and he thinks that this woman is so beautiful that only one name will do. He thinks, I'm going to name her after my first cousin, Isabella. Awkward. It's a bit weird. Yeah. But different times. Horses for courses. Yep. So the crew of the Bounty call her Mainmast as well, which is sort of a less beautiful name. <laughs> but the two meet, and author Peter Fitzsimon, so he's the Aussie, he writes, Christian is completely smitten, and happily she returns his fervour in kind. The two of them, the epitome of falling in love at first sight. And Bly's not really sure how to raise the breadfruit issue. He doesn't know if it's going to be a big deal, whether he's going to be asking a lot, um, and he definitely doesn't want to appear desperate. Yes. Because he's, he's, he's the commander-in-chief. Bly grovels to, to no man. So he meets with Tyner, the king, and in their conversation, he tells this king that he's going to visit the other chiefs of Tahiti. Tyner pleads with Bly to remain. Just stay here. The presence of the bounty in Matavaive sort of brings him great prestige, uh, mana, and offers all sort of manner of gifts just to incentivize him to stay. Bly picks his moment. You know, he's a shrewd negotiator, and he thinks, right, I've got leverage here. And in that moment, he says, you know what King George would really appreciate on the topic of gifts? You got any breadfruit plants? Oh, well played. Yeah, maybe a thousand, you know. Yeah. Bread, breadfruit or something else, whatever. But breadfruit, have you got any? Tyner doesn't even care. He's just, just like, uh, yep. Yeah, man, take <laughs> as many as you want. Yeah, we've got a lot of those lying around. Yeah. Basically unlimited breadfruit. So that important part of the mission is now checked off. Tick. And um, it sort of requires a lot of work as well, though. They need to carefully dig out these breadfruit saplings, um, making sure they don't damage the roots in the process. They need to pot them, constantly water them, um, let them get stronger just so they can survive what will be a you know pretty perilous journey. And after that, they'll transport them carefully to the ship. But... For the first part of that, at least, they're going to need a shore party to look after these plants before they're strong enough to get them to the bounty. So, yeah, Bly's essentially saying, all right, hands up, please, if you want to stay on shore in paradise with mostly naked women. Mm. And they were just struck by the beauty of these women. They were blown away. What's wrong with British women? Nothing, absolutely nothing, except, well, a lot of reports at the time, no teeth. They had no teeth. Okay. Yeah. The Tahitian women. I think they probably nagged a bit more than the Tahitian women as well. Yeah. Because Tahitian culture, and a lot of them write, people who were there write about the fact that their days were just spent in leisure. You know, they didn't, yeah, they didn't have to sweat to work the earth. They would literally climb a tree, grab some breadfruit. Outstanding. And so, you know, when they arrive, they're met by just mostly naked, bare chested women, welcoming them, embracing them physically metaphorically, mm. um, and Bly's now saying, who, who among you wants to stay on shore so you can be close with these women, hang out all the time, don't have to talk to me, I'm not going to be yelling at you while you're there, any takers. <laughs> and, you know, his best man for the job, Fletcher Christian, puts him on shore with the botanists, young Peter Haywood, the guy who was mastheaded. Yes. Um, and just a rotating selection of four other guards, I think, just to facilitate the whole process. So they set this base of operations up at Point Venus and 
it's here that that thievish disposition that Cook had noted previously uh, sort of rears its head again. Mm-hmm. Thievery takes centre stage. So um, Alex Smith, he's a he's a guy whose name was actually John Adams, but he had a bit of a sordid past, so he registered with the bounty under yep. a different name. Um, he's on watch duty on shore, guarding the launch that had taken Bly to the beach, and under his watch, the gudgeon of the little boat's rudder is taken. And so that's just a small metal pen yep. that acts as sort of the hinge for the rudder. Crucial. Yeah, the gudgeon, and the Tahitians love metal. Yep. And Adams wasn't drunk, he wasn't asleep, he wasn't flirting with a woman, anything. It seems that one of the locals was just inspired by those trickster gods and managed to steal in and get away with it. Bly, not having a bar of it, 12 lashes for Adams. It's a bit harsh. Yeah, and he thinks that Tyna and the watching Tahitians are going to be awed by this. They're just going to respect his mm. sense respect of authority. Authority. Exactly. Um, but they're horrified. They, they're pleading for Bly to stop. But he doesn't. Of course, he doesn't stop. A ship without discipline, absolute disaster waiting to happen. And according to Fitzsimons, this is another moment of resentment, just like Haywood going up the mast, you know, just like the lack of signing the expense books from Fryer, um, maybe loaning the money to Fletcher Christian. Um, Adams would harbour this resentment for the punishment. He didn't think he did anything wrong. Anyone would have done the same thing in his position. It wasn't his fault. Otherwise, though, apart from that lashing and the horror of, of all of that, the crew are settling into their new life in what is just absolute paradise. Um, yeah. Young Haywood, Fletcher Christian's mate, starts immersing himself in the local culture. He's creating a Tahitian dictionary. Nice. And Fletcher Christian's relationship with Isabella. Thriving. Absolutely thriving. It's just, it is the quintessential archetypal love at first sight. They're both gorgeous and they're just smitten. How good. Yeah. So star-crossed lovers, they spend almost every waking moment together. Christian hardly ever goes back to the bounty unless he absolutely has to. Why would you? Exactly. It's very hard. Pros and cons, very hard to make an argument against. Um, to display their attachment, though, this is Christian and, and the other sailors on the boat, uh, they get Tahitian tattoos. No. And this, yeah, it doesn't seem like much. You know, you're just there. And, I mean, t- tattoos at this point in Europe were non-existent. So there was a novelty to it, yeah. but it also marked a bit of a shared experience for them. Yeah, They got a, a tattoo on the left side of their chest. It was a star, um, and they started referring to themselves as the Knights of Tahiti, uh-huh. mostly just as a joke, I think. Yeah. You know, it was all in good fun. But at the same time, there was, I think, a bit of a sense that they were part of some secret club. Was uh, Bly part of this club? No, he wasn't that keen for tattoos. He wouldn't even take his shirt off. It was swelteringly hot. He was a potato man. And it, yeah, little red-faced potato man. Okay. Um, yeah, he wouldn't take his jacket off. He'd just sweat the whole day because it wasn't proper, you know, for him to remove his garments. Mm-hmm. So they've all got these tattoos and they've taken on you know, one or several Tahitian lovers. Sun's shining, breeze is warm. Can't complain. Not the slums of London. They're all smitten by the place and the people. Except for, as you mentioned, one tiny little man with a ginormous temper. Yes. Constantly angry. William Bly. William Bly. And in a move that just shows Bly didn't care at all um, about what the men really thought, he just cancels Christmas. <laughs> yeah. The, the Grinch? Basically, yeah. Short little Grinch. No Christmas for you guys. 
Um, there's too much work to do. And part of that is that the bounty needs to move. Yes. They can't stay moored at Matavai Bay anymore. Monsoon weather. Okay. Threatening the ship. Fair enough. Take it somewhere else. Yeah. And Fryer and Christian are tasked with navigating the little passage away from where they are, around the side to, to a safer spot. But they mess up. Ooh. Yeah. So they think they've sort of scouted the route, but the ship runs aground. Yeah. And that's one of the no-nos of... Running a ship aground. Yeah, you're not supposed to. Okay. It must stay in the water completely. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. So um, Bly just, he understands mistakes happen, actually. He just... Oh, really? No, he goes absolutely mental Ah. and just he unloads all of this pent-up rage, maybe a little bit of jealousy. Christian's a loving life, doesn't need him anymore. Yes. On Fletcher Christian. Um, And Christian's just humiliated. So he does this in front of everyone, right? Yeah, everybody. It's This is public dressing down. And Fryer cops it as well, but he's a bit older. Fletcher Christian's only 23 at this point. Like, he's really young. Yeah. Fry's the same age, roughly, as Bly, 33, 34. And he can sort of absorb it a little bit more. But Christian can't. He's just completely overwhelmed by the way that Bly destroys him in front of everyone, including the Tahitians. One of the sailors, James Morrison, and he, he kept a journal the whole way through. So yeah. a lot of the material that we draw from comes from Morrison's writing. He wrote that Fletcher could not let it go. He reports that um, Christian said, I would not regard the captain's cruelty in abusing me if he would only do it in private instead of doing it before the people of this country. But that's Bly's not done. So he's got this public dressing down, humiliation, yep. but he's like a, a villain in a film. He's got a dagger in his boot, think he's finished, stabs him in the ribs. He makes negative comments regarding Christian's rank, his status, to Isabella's father. Oh, you can't do that. No. Frowned upon. He So Isabella's father, not only does he love Isabella, but her father is Christian's Tayo. That is sort of a, a brethren, brotherhood. Yeah. It's a male-to-male connection. And it was something that all of the soldiers made. They would obviously um, have relationships with the women, but they were also kind of expected to have a Tayo. Yeah. And Isabella's father is disgusted with Christian for this trickery, the skullduggery. Okay. Yeah, so he's, you know, laying with his daughter, but he's just a, he's a lonely servant. He's a little peasant plebby guy. Christian can clear it up, so it's not that that relationship's damaged beyond repair, but the relationship between Bly and Christian is irreparably damaged at this point. Yep. Fitzsimons, again, the Australian author writes, the end result is that the alliance... No, that was half English, half Australian. The end result, there we go, is that the alliance between the bounty crew and the common Tahitians is deepened and placed at the service of thwarting the desires of Captain Bry. So Fitzsimons, who's the Aussie author, yes, he, he writes, the end result is that the alliance between the bounty crew and the common Tahitians is deepened. And I guess that's contrasted with the relationship between Bly and his crew, mm. Bly and the Tahitians. You know, I mentioned the Knights of Tahiti. They got these tattoos. Yes. And it, there was a real divide. Um, another thing that happened here as well, just in very brief mention to um, Haywood, he, he was placed below decks in chains by Bly for seven weeks. Seven weeks in chains. Seven weeks below deck, yeah, in chains, in paradise. It's not like he wasn't, you know... They weren't at sea. Oh. There was a lot to miss out on. And he- this, he fell asleep. He was on watch. Oh. And a couple of the guys 
actually tried to make an escape from the bounty. So they took um, some canoes and headed off to nearby islands. They got sad and scared, I think, and then Bly rustled them all up and brought so, them back on ship. But that's not Hayward. No. So why is he in trouble? Well, he was on watch uh, when they took off. Okay. He was the officer on watch, and, yeah, he he didn't notice. So seven weeks. So, again, that's another little splinter, another little shank in the side. But, you know, to sum up where we're at, we've had this beautiful time on Tahiti. The breadfruit plants have thrived. They've been put into the boat, um, the ship, and yes. they're ready to go. First week of April, 1789, Fitzsimons writes, Bly rejoices that they are finally ready to leave, and yet he is one of a tiny minority of the ship's company who feels that way. For most of the officers and sailors, the last five months have been time spent in paradise, the most glorious time of their lives, and many of them are in love with particular women, some of whom are pregnant with their babies, who they must now leave behind. And so that's the scene. That's, that's the situation that they are leaving when Bly orders anchors away, Let's go. Sounds like there's a bit of tension. Yeah. Sounds like it's a powder keg. Yeah. What are you going to get? Yeah. I think, I think we're probably ending on a cliffhanger, to be fair. Something's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. To summarize then, Bly, young guy, absolute prodigy when it comes to sailing, mm-hmm. gets on Captain Cook's third voyage. Yep. Watches as Captain Cook die, his mentor, his hero. Hacked to pieces. Comes back. Hands in his pockets. Cook's hands. Comes back, gets promoted, gets given the role of being in charge of this important mission to take breadfruit to the West Indies on the bounty. All's going well, although he's probably a little bit heavy-handed when it comes to the discipline. Mm. Bit of tension in the crew. Yep. They make it to Tahiti. The plants are going all right. They're there for a couple of months. Five months. All his crew fall in love. Yep. They're in paradise. Tattoos, nights at Tahiti. Life's still being pretty strict. Yeah. And things are reaching boiling point. Yeah. Now they're ready to leave. Yeah, well, Bly's ready to leave. I feel like something's going to happen. Yeah. Why don't we... I'd want to stay in Tahiti. Yeah, as you would. Yeah. As you would. So, yeah, I guess in our next episode, we'll follow on and see what happens from that point. The story splits. It goes in multiple directions. Would you Um, say the story could get mutinous? It could. The mood certainly could get mutinous. Okay. Clouds will darken. The sea will boil. Well, let's find out next time on whatever this is called Pacific Legends Unleashed yeah that <laughs>